My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Jim Bianco. Jim, I know a lot of people know of you and track you, but for those who have been living under a rock, introduce yourself. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Oh, thanks, Michael. Congratulations on almost getting to a million downloads there. My name is Jim Bianco. I am the president and founder of Bianco Research, just about 26 years old right now. We provide uh, macro and fixed income research primarily to an institutional community through our marketing partner and affiliated company, Arbor Research and Trading, which is an institutional bond brokerage house. As you mentioned, in the last couple of months, I've also strayed into a second line of business, and that is we did start an index called the Bianco Total Return Index, B-T-R-I-N-D-X, on your Bloomberg or BiancoAdvisors.com is the website. That is an index that we discretionarily manage to intentionally overweight or underweight various sectors and factors of the fixed income market. So let me back up. It is a total return fixed income index. So it's always invested in the fixed income market, overweight and underweight a series of factors to try and outperform the index. And last month, a tracker ETF, WTBN, with my partners at Wisdom Tree, the Wisdom Tree Bianco Total Return Fund, started trading, which tracks our index. So if you go to Bianco Advisors, you can see the index, how it's constructed, how we're weighted, why we're weighted, and we could talk about that during the hour. And there is an ETF, WTBN, that tracks it. So those are the lines of business I'm in, and I'm looking forward to the conversation about the Fed in the markets and everything else. All right. So we'll get into that. And I think your timing and launching that index and then the tracker fund are probably better. It's probably better time. There's a lot of dynamics as far as cycles and successful launches, which we can touch on when it comes to the industry. But let's start big picture on the Fed, because I asked you the question, what do you want to talk about? And it was one word, Fed. It, it, it seems like there's a lot of confusion as to what's going to happen next. We started the year off, everybody thinking you're going to have all these rate cuts. Suddenly, the economy, economic data looks better than most people expected. S&P keeps running away. NASDAQ keeps running away. Small caps, not too much. We'll touch on that, too. What's your big picture view on Fed policy here and what the market has maybe gotten right and wrong? Yeah, so let's go back to 2020 real quick and say that the pandemic changed a lot of economic cycles. And I've always liked the warn, change does not mean dystopian. It does not mean worse. It means different. Coming out of those economic cycles... I think we've seen one of the biggest changes of attitudes about work in our lifetime, headed by the idea of remote work, which, by the way, ties into the news today that New York Community Bank, the bank that took over Signature Bank that failed last year, reported a big loss because they had to take some write-downs on a couple of loans tied to New York City real estate. The stock lost 45%, and the bond market is now going crazy because I guess the bond market just learned an hour ago that office real estate's in trouble. I guess they didn't know that until an hour ago. And that's why we're seeing this plunge in the short end of the yield curve right now, which might actually overtake the Fed as the biggest story of the day. But nevertheless, there was a change in work. Office real estate is now fundamentally different. There was a change in attitudes. And I think that attitude has led to a propensity for people to spend, whether it's PTSD from 2020, some other attitude. We saw that in 2020, 2021 with the meme stocks and with the stimulus checks that no one saved them, everybody spent them. Either they spent them on GameStop or they spent them on revenge travel or whatever we're calling it this week. But because of that, we are in an environment where there's a lot more CPI type spending and there's a lot less S&P 500 type savings, which is what we had prior to 2020. And so I've argued two things can be true at the same time. There was a big transitory element in inflation that got us to 9% by June of 22. That transitory element has dissipated and we're now left with, I believe, a 3 to 4% inflation environment. I believe that the last mile everybody's talking about to 2% is largely done. And that we're not going to really go back to 2% on inflation. And this is the crux of the argument you're going to hear in a couple of hours. Jay, declare victory. Jay, cut rates. Jay, you don't need to be as restrictive as you have been. And to that, I understand they're probably going to hint at a rate cut coming. 
March was before the New York bank uh, announcement was 50-50. It's now a little bit above 50-50 as far as a rate cut goes. I would remind everybody, three weeks ago, the market was pricing an 85% chance that the Fed would cut in March, and now it's around 50-50. And the reason is that it's come down and it's in doubt is everybody wants the Fed to take a victory lap, but the data keeps surprising to the upside. Whether it's payrolls back in January or GDP, even the inflation data was either equal to or a little bit better than people thought, or a little bit higher than people thought. Add into that the all-time high in the stock market and some high-frequency measures of the employment. The labor market seems to be doing okay with very low claims. And an all-time high in the stock market, at least yesterday, was an all-time high in the stock market. And it begs the question that I want to beg the question, five and a quarter to five and a half on the funds rate, people say is clearly restrictive. Okay. What's it restricting? What is actually being dragged down because the Fed's got rates too high, whether you're talking real rates or nominal rates? The answer I'll give you is I'm having a hard time finding anything that's being Oh, there's some parts of the real estate market that are struggling. It's a big market. Office is struggling. Some parts of residential might be struggling. Other parts are not. That's not enough to cut the rate. rate. The economy seems to be okay. Labor seems to be okay. The stock market, all-time highs. So what is being restrictive that demands that the Fed back off right now? Long and variable lags is another argument you'll hear people say, meaning it's not bad now, but it will be bad next week or next month or next quarter. Okay. If it turns out to be the case that it will be bad next week, next month, then we'll, you know, the Fed can adjust otherwise. I'll remind you a year ago, the consensus was we're going to have a recession. We're going to go right into recession. A year ago, that was through consensus. That was the long and variable lag. The Fed raised rates too much when we were back at three and a half to four percent a year ago. And so therefore, we're going to have a recession in the second half of 23. The opposite happened. So the long and variable lag crowd, let's wait till you actually see a long and variable lag dragging down the economy. Last thought for you on this section. What I'm arguing is the level of interest rates are not punishing at all. They're not too high. They're actually closer to the pre-QE normal that we used to see before 2009. And I think the mistake that everybody makes is, the rates you saw from 2010 to 2022, those were the abnormal rates. Those were the rates that were wrong. Those were the rates that were too low. The rates you currently see now are closer to being normal rates that you should typically expect. But since you anchored yourself off of 2010 to 2022, you think these rates are punishing the high. And that's the mistake is which one is the mistake? People think the current level of rates is the mistake. They're too high. I'm arguing the previous cycle was too low and we became anchored to that. And that's the mistake. If you go back and you look at what were the average rates before 2009 and what you see today, it's pretty much average. And we had a 10-year expansion and a bull market in stocks and falling unemployment. And we were able just fine, thank you very much, with 6 7 8% mortgages, 6 7 8% corporate borrowing rates, real rates in the 2 to 3% range. Economy was just fine with all of that. And I think it will be with this. Hence, why I've been such a skeptic, if you will, or a bear on bonds and thinking that rates can stay up and can go higher, especially if inflation stays sticky in that 3 to 4% range. Okay. I want to go back and forth on just to play devil's advocate on things. So, no disagreements on the restrictive point. And that's very clear when you look at credit spreads, right? And I think that I made that point for a number of you know months and even a year now, it's been remarkable, and I think everybody would agree with us, that you've gone through the fastest rate high cycle in history, and yet spreads just keep on narrowing, narrowing. In other words, the restrictive element should be seen in default risk, right? In the difference between junk and AAA, that has not really risen whatsoever. Now, you said you used a phrase earlier, you said two things can be true at the same time, but I guess the question is for how long? Because it does seem to me, and this is more from an intermarket perspective, that there's a disconnect between Credit spreads being as tight as they are, right? which again goes to your point that it's not restrictive, against this real sideways action among small cap companies, retailer stocks, the things which would be most sensitive to a credit event and to higher financing 
clearly are not responding in a positive way the way that we think uh, everything else as the market is, which is really just a select number of large cap tech names, right, with the S&P and the NASDAQ. How do you square that circle? Because uh, I, I'm pretty sure when you look historically, there is a link between, for example, small cap underperformance and credit spreads widening. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. Not this time. Yeah, so two things, first of all, to talk about there, credit spreads. Let's remind everybody, too, that January, $176 billion of new issuance in corporate bonds, which is an all-time record. So there's been a flood of issuance in bonds. The big thing to keep in mind that differs between the Treasury Department and and a corporate treasurer is the Treasury Department and in their quarterly funding announcement today is somewhat restricted that they're only allowed to borrow based on what Congress has approved. That's why we get a quarterly refunding announcement to tell us what they're going to borrow for the next three months. They can never come out. In other words, the Treasury can never come out and say, you know what? It's 2018. We've got zero on the funds rate. We've got these 2% 10-year note rates. We're going to just issue trillions and trillions of dollars of 10-year notes, 30-year votes, and take advantage of this cheap money. They can't do that. They can only issue what's been authorized. Treasurer can do that. A corporate treasurer can say, if the market is offering me a good deal, I will take it because it's a good deal. That's what I think you saw in January. I think what the corporate treasurers are telling you in January is a combination of low rates and tight spreads. This is a good deal. And they're jumping on those rates and issuing a lot of bonds. They're telling you that the current level of rates is not restrictive. It's not punishing. They're willing to take on that cost. And so that's, I think, the first signal that we're we're seeing. And typically when you see a surge of borrowing by corporations, their signal to us, these are low rates. They're not punishingly high rates. They are not issuing bonds at these rates, a record amount in January, because they expect interest rates to keep falling the rest of the year. If they did, they would be holding off as long as they can to get uh, those low rates as possible. I know people will say about the, the maturity wall and stuff like that, but there's ways around that. If, if you think that rates are going to go lower, you know, as far as, you know, corporate financing. So there's a clear message there from corporate treasurers that these are low rates and that they're taking, they're trying to take advantage of them. To your second point about if you look at retailers, if you look at the Russell 2000 stocks versus the MAG7 stocks, you know, to take the extremes, that they're vastly underperforming the MAG7 stocks. In fact, a lot of the Russell 2000 stocks haven't been doing well at all. Unfortunately, I, I think we got, or I should say, the answer unfortunately lies in the Federal Reserve's survey of consumer finances. What they show, they do this every other year, and what their consumer finance survey shows is 90%, 94% of all financial assets, 94% are held by the people in the top 50% of income. So if you're at the median average of income, I think it's $43,000 a year, something like that, and higher, you own virtually all of the assets. The bottom 50% own of the assets. In fact, the top 10% own about a third of all of the assets. So 10% of the public owns a third of all the assets. But if you look at the liability side, who has all the debt? The bottom 50% have 56% of the debt. So the unfortunate thing is the rich have all the assets, poor have all the debt. And that's the way it's always been, unfortunately. And so when you look at things like the retailers and stuff like that, you have to ask yourself, who shops at these places? If it's the Dollar Tree, Dollar Generals of the world, it's the bottom 50% with all the debt. And that's why 
interest rates matter, inflation matters a great deal to them. And that's where you're seeing the struggle. But if you're talking about the 0.01%, there was a story yesterday that if you want to buy a Lamborghini, you have to wait till 2026 because they're sold out for the next two years. They're just watching the they're just watching the S&P go to new all-time highs. They're getting good cash flows from bigger yields in the market. Everything's rolling for them. So I think that's the way you've got to square it is that who are these companies appealing to the bottom 50% that have the debt or are they appealing to the top 10% that have a third of all of the assets? And like I said, the difference between Lamborghini and Dollar Tree or Dollar General is a good explanation of how that works. And it gets back to my question about, to Jay, who needs to help here right now? Do we need to help those Lamborghini, those people waiting for their Lamborghinis? Or do we need to help those people in the bottom 50%? Well, obviously, we need to help those people in the bottom 50%. But be very careful, Jay, if your policy of easing causes the market to think that you're not serious about inflation, that will cause long rates to go up and you will have made the bottom 50% worse. So be very, very careful on this whole idea that we have to cut rates, we have to be a more accommodative. That works as long as you are dead sure that you've got this inflation problem solved. And I'll remind you, Jay, you told me two years ago it was transitory in the first place and got that dead wrong. Have you fixed that problem permanently? Because if you have not, that's the risk you're taking by cutting rates. You cut rates, you accommodate, you give us 5,000 in the S&P, but you also might give us higher long-term interest rates because people will, the bond market will say, if you're not serious about fighting inflation, I'm not serious about owning your long-term bonds. And that could be the risk that you're taking by being accommodative from here. So those are, that kind of squares out the, the two issues. Is it fair to say that the most powerful transmission mechanism to create a more restrictive environment now isn't rate for maybe is the stock market or is the S&P itself? I say that purely because there is a link between the VIX volatility and credit spreads widening. It goes back to the earlier point about being restrictive, you can see in default risk, right? And the way the junk debt side of things reacts. That seems to be the real dilemma. So if you're going to cut rates and the market interprets or investors interpret that as, as bullish and still largely bullish for large cap tech and S&P market cap weighted indices, which most people are in, that you can argue reaccelerates the wealth effect, in which case it counters all their hiking rates to begin with. No, I agree. I think that the primary mechanism for trying to control the economy is indeed the wealth effect. That's what we saw in 2022. You know, for all of those that are that been forecasting a recession, I'll remind everybody that Q1 and Q2 of 2022 was negative. We had two consecutive negative GDP quarters. And if you remember back two years ago, every economist was falling over backwards to tell you that is not a recession, even though they're negative quarters back to back. By the way, there's been 21 times in American history we've had negative back-to-back GDP quarters. 19 of them have been recessions. The two that have not been recessions was 1947 and 2022. And so I actually have been arguing and continue to argue that actually was a recession. You had a 20% decline in the stock market, and that gets to your point. What coincidentally happened with those two negative quarters, a 20% decline in the stock market, big rise in interest rates. So yeah, I think that the primary mechanism for regulating the economy by the Federal Reserve is probably a wealth effect. And if their easing of financial conditions or cutting of interest rates produces new highs in the stock market, you're going to get stronger growth, especially among that top third that have all the assets. And that top third of all the assets are the vast majority of spending in the country as well, too. Something like a one percenter spends 11x more than anybody in the bottom 50%. So if you produce higher wealth, you're going to produce higher spending among that crowd. Then that goes to my earlier thing I said before. Coming out of 2020, did we change attitudes? Let me explain this so we were all on the same page. After the financial crisis of 2009, stock market bottom started up in 11, 12, 13, and 2014. You got your monthly brokerage statement to keep the example simple. You saw that it went up. You felt good. 
that you know my net worth went up this month because the stock market rally. What did you do about it between say 2010 and 2020? Nothing. You felt better that you had more savings. That was good enough. And you just kept it in the market and it just kept going. What did we do in 21, in 20 and 21, when we got the stimulus checks and we saw the stock market go up? Just travel. We spent it. We're spending that money. So when you get your brokerage statement today and it says, hey, we got more money than we had last month or last quarter, let's go to the Bahamas. Let's buy something. That's what's different about this cycle than the previous cycle. So the previous cycle, the wealth effect produced financial assets inflation. I think that this cycle, the wealth effect will produce more CPI inflation. And again, I'm not in the 810 Zimbabwe camp for CPI, but the stickiness at around 3 or 4% inflation. And that is not going to sit well with the bottom 50% that you know, they're, they're going to continue to see 3 and 4% inflationary rises. And the last thing I'll mention to you, the thing that really can drive the economy more than a wealth effect is gasoline prices. But the Fed can't do anything about the gasoline prices. That's out of their control. So if gasoline prices wind up going up or down a lot, that has an enormous impact on the economy. But they're just spectator in that game they're not a primary driver of it. It doesn't really distort the idea that, in quote, the market is a discounting mechanism of the future. I mean, if it's really just about the wealth effect around market cap weighted averages driving and having this kind of feedback, then it's more coincident, not leading. I'd argue, I've made this case before, that I'd argue actually right now, just because of the auto bit of anything from 401ks, small caps are probably more of a discounting reflection of the future than large caps because there's actually price discovery versus that kind of automatic flow separately on the large cap side. Oh, no, I agree with you. I do think that it is probably coincidental right now, and it is flow-driven. And I think two things have changed that equation. You know, where the market was supposed to be a discounting mechanism about the future, that was developed a generation or two ago, when the market cap to GDP was well less than 100%, and you didn't have macro flows, I'll call it macro flows, ETFs. Let's just buy all 500 stocks. Let's buy all 2000 stocks. You know, let's just buy every bond, you know, BND or AGG or something like that. That You didn't have that. You had more of a capitalistic approach. Let's buy the stocks that are going to go up and let's avoid the ones that are going to go down. And that's when you had the discounting mechanism. And when the market was a much smaller part relative to GDP, it didn't become as self-fulfilling as it is today. So I do think that there's some respect that is somewhat self-fulfilling. Money flows in, people feel good, they do something with that money. And then therefore, the flows and the movement of the market becomes somewhat self-fulfilling. And I'll remind you, 20, I believe 2010 to 2022, 21, somewhere in that range, you felt good, you replowed that money back into the market. 21-ish and forward, you felt good spent it or are spending more of it now than you have in the past, producing higher levels of GDP, higher levels of inflation, add the two together, and that's higher levels of nominal GDP is what you're producing. And a quick word about nominal GDP. Again, inflation plus real growth is nominal GDP. Where should an inflation, where should an interest rate in a in an economy be? Should it be at a hundred and hundred percent plus like it is in Venezuela? Should it be at zero like it was recently in Japan? What's its nominal GDP growth? If it's Venezuela and you've got 100 plus percent inflation, then yes, you should have 100 plus percent interest rates because your nominal GDP growth is over 100%. If you're Japan and the combination of your real growth and inflation, not now, but two years ago it was, and for 20 years before that, was zero, your rates should be around zero. So if we're going to go into a period of higher nominal growth, we had 6% nominal GDP growth in 2023, then we should be in a period of elevated to higher interest rates. And again, if you're tracking nominal GDP, 6%, nominal GDP, we had 5% on the 10-year, we got 5% on short rates. Those are not restrictive rates. Those are what the rates should be. And so this whole argument that you're going to hear, I think, in an hour and a half is, Jay, cut rates, you're killing everything. He's not killing anything. These rates are not punishing at current levels. I know you can argue in a $30 trillion economy, 
you know, New York Community Bank or somewhere else that there are issues. Yes, there always is. But as a larger whole economy, I don't think these are punishing rates. So I don't see the real need for the Fed to have to lower rates uh, tremendously as we move forward. I want to go back to what you said uh, at the start of the conversation, which I don't disagree with, the idea that the mistake was, you know, ZERP and all the QE and all these other rates. You can maybe argue the first QE was needed, you know, with 08, but, you know, two and twist and three, certainly you can argue was not uh, needed. But so I've, I've had David, David Rosenberg on before, and I, I am of the same mindset that the issue, I think, with doing any kind of historical uh, comparison against prior rates and saying we're we're at the historical norm is that there's so much more efficiency because of technology and AI alone is supposed to be this massive disinflationary force. So that should make the average rate lower on a go forward basis than anything we've seen in the past. Help help me understand that disconnect. Speaking about disconnects, that's something I can't quite get my own head around. You've got this incredibly powerful momentum narrative around AI and how this is going to be game changing for the entire system. I was taught from economics back in NYU that, you know, technology shifts the yield curve lower because of the efficiency dynamic, right? Shifts the average rates uh, to the left, basically. Why has that not been a part of the, the calculation when it comes to the bond market? So real quick on your first part about ZERP and NERP and everything else like that, you're right. The history of central banks, especially the Fed, is we have a crisis in 2008. They have a response to the crisis, and that was quantitative easing. And that was probably an appropriate response. But then what they usually do is they usually say, hey, we did something right. Let's keep doing it for another 12 years until we way overdo it to the point that it actually becomes a bad thing at that point. And that's what a lot of central banks do. They stumble on a, a correct policy that helps and then they don't stop doing it. And they do it for way, way too long. So I agree with you that QE in and of itself wasn't a bad thing. 2007, 2008, even 2009, it was probably necessary and helpful. The problem was it kept doing it in 2022 on, in various forms as well. Now, to your question about technology, whenever we talk about technology shifting the curve down, then that is true. I think from an economic standpoint, what we're really talking about is with increased productivity, that's what technology does, is it makes it supposed to make us more productive. It should shift down nominal GDP. Mostly the inflation component of nominal GDP should fall. And that should bring down nominal GDP and that should bring down inf uh, overall interest rates. And that largely has been the case. But what's the assumption in there? The assumption in there is that tastes and preferences and demand is largely unchanged. That whatever, and you hear this all the time, you'll probably hear Jay Powell in a couple of you know, hours use the words normalize or rebalance. He does almost every conference call several times. And those are words that mean in my, what he's trying to say is, you know, that event that happened in 2020 when we shut down the economy and restarted it, it's a one-off, it's over. Everything is exactly the same as it was in 2019. Nothing has changed. You demand the same things. You live your life the same way. Your outlook is not different. Your spending patterns are not different. Yes, they are. All of these are. And again, different does not mean worse. It means different. And so, yeah, I would agree that AI technology does depress inflation because it increases productivity. But if you get into an era where you're spending more, where deglobalization is becoming more of a thing, where the world is becoming more uncertain, you know, I still would argue that by the end of the year, we're going to realize that Wall Street's got this whole Red Sea thing wrong, that this disruption in shipping is going to produce a lot more goods inflation than people currently think it's going to produce. So I think that with all of those changes, that is going to be the push towards higher levels of inflation, higher levels of nominal GDP. And again, I'm not in the 8, 10 Zimbabwe camp for inflation. I'm in the 3 to 4% inflation camp. And if you give me 2 to 2.5% 2 real growth or 2.7, which is what we averaged last year, that puts our nominal GDP solidly in the five handle range. And that's where I think ultimately interest rates are going to go is towards that nominal GDP level into the five handle range. And so it is that change of preferences. So that really is the question, is do you spend the same way? Do you live your life the same way? 
do you demand the same thing that you did in 2019 that you do today? And I'm arguing the answer is no. You are home two days a week, Monday and Friday probably, if you have a service sector job. Let me restate that. You used to be home two days a week, Saturday and Sunday. Now you're home four days a week. You've doubled the amount of time you're at home. Your lifestyle's changed. You demand different things. You demand less of other things. And that change in lifestyle has created simultaneous gluts and bottlenecks, and we're trying to work it out as to where it's going to go. Where does AI come into this? Once that change settles down and we understand the new parameters for the economy and consumer preferences, then we could use things like technology and AI to make that more productive. But when we're in a state of flux, which is where I think we are now, then we're going to see those frictions keep inflation higher. How do I say we're in a state of flux? Jay Powell will say normalize, rebalance times in a few hours. In other words, he's saying nothing has changed. And I'm saying things have changed. And New York City Community Bank is telling you things have changed. They're writing down office real estate because it's not coming back to 2019 values. So before we could talk about AI reducing inflation, we got to figure out where we are in this cycle to start with, because Jay Powell and New York Community Bank have different views of where the cycle is right now. They're not in agreement. And until everybody gets in agreement, there's only so much technology can do to lower the inflation rate. And again, I'm only talking about 3 4% inflation, not something out of control. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20 minutes, everybody, please make sure you follow Jim Bianco here on X. If any of you want to come up and ask questions, make sure you follow me. Click bottom left. I'm happy to bring you up. And as always, this will be a podcast under Lead Lag Live on Apple, YouTube, and Spotify. I want to touch on, on the index and the fund launch, but it sounds, I just look at some of your more recent interviews, it sounds to me like you're of the same mindset as I am, and I've been saying this for the last several months, that there could be an exogenous shock coming from Japan, or what I've called the, the Mothra, instead of the butterfly effect, the Mothra effect. I've warned that there's this reverse carry trade dynamic that could unleash a whole bunch of nasty margin call dynamics, as historically is the case if the Bank of Japan is going to do some degree of normalization for a central bank that has no idea what normal is. Uh, it seems to me that it still remains uh, this whole meme joking about Godzilla and that, what that means for, in quotes, the new bull market. Talk about Japan as a risk that maybe people are not focusing too much on, but could matter in a big way. So who is the largest foreign buyer of treasury securities? Hint, it's not China. It's Japan. Japan is the big player. China peaked in its foreign holdings of treasury securities in 2011 and has been kind of, you know, getting away from those now for 13 years. So that's not that there's nothing there. And we used to always worry about, you know, what happens when China jump dumps all their treasury securities? Yeah, they did it 13 years ago. But it's it's Japan that is the big player. What is the big driver of Japan buying US treasuries? Well, US treasuries are the reserve currency. They're a higher yielding instrument than most of the developed world. And Japan had very low interest rates. So there was this Japanese carry trade, right? Borrow in Japan at near zero and go buy treasuries that are yielding 5% and pick up this enormous carry. Yeah, you take, it in, you take a currency risk. The Bank of Japan was trying to manage that currency risk. And so there was this gigantic, you know, yen carry trade that was hope that was feeding in as a giant buyer of treasuries. Well, now that inflation has returned to Japan, and the definition of returning to Japan is 2%. It doesn't sound like tier 2%, but after a decade or two of zero, 2% does look like a, you know, a real return to inflation. They're starting to see their interest rates go up. They're starting to see them loosen the idea about yield curve control. They do have yield curve control in Japan where they try to focus. They target the 10-year yield at zero, and then they put this plus or minus band on it, and talk about losing the narrative. The target is still zero, but now the band is plus or minus 100 basis points. So where does everybody trade? We trade at 100 basis points. Whatever happened to the target actually being zero as opposed to the upper end of the band. Now, the fear in Japan is that they're just going to abandon that altogether. And if they do, and you look at their nominal GDP growth, it's running at around three or four, and you look at their 10-year yield, which is running a little bit less than one, 
that will put upward pressure on their interest rates that will make Japanese investors see two things. The carry, the differential between the U.S. and Japan will narrow, making it less attractive to buy treasuries. And the yield in Japan will become more, making that more competitive. So you wind up losing the largest foreign buyer of treasury securities in the Japanese. And the last thought for you is, if you ever look at a chart of the yen overlaid on the 10-year yield, it's effectively the same thing. And that's because it is such a dominant feature of their financial flows, the amount of treasuries that they buy from Japan, that it, it fits with their currency. So they matter. And if they wind up leaving over the next year or two as they end yield curve control, if their interest rates go up, they become more competitive with us. The demand from the Japanese to buy U.S. treasuries softens. We're going to lose a big buyer of treasury securities. We made a big deal today about the quarterly refunding announcement and how many 10-year notes and 30-year notes bonds are going to issue and who's going to buy them. Well, that's kind of the same argument, but bigger picture of a longer term. If you lose that big player, it does become a problem for the U.S. Treasury market. But then I'm going to make the assumption that, of course, because the Fed steps right back in and we're back into balance sheet expansion, QE, and the game repeats. Yeah, except one thing. Yes, the Fed could do all of that. They could cut rates to zero. They could QE. They could do any of that, all of that above, except if we have inflation. If we have inflation and they try to be ultra accommodative to meeting, you know, to filling that hole, they're going to scare long-term bondholders into selling aggressively. If you're not going to fight inflation, I don't want to touch your bonds. And those yields wind up soaring and they make it worse. That's why the key here to everything is inflation. If it goes away, Fed could do whatever they want, just like they did from 2010 to 2022. They didn't have inflation. They could do whatever they want. Keep rates at zero for seven years, do quantitative easing, not do it. They, whatever they wanted to do was fine. But when inflation returns, they are boxed in. The assumption everybody has is we've defeated the – look at Paul Krugman's Twitter feed. I've won. It's over. Get in your car and go home. There's no more game left to play. Inflation is defeated. Are we sure? Are we sure that's the case? They don't. Krugman thinks that's the case, and we know what his track record is, but you know we'll have to see. But if inflation is not over, then that becomes very problematic for the Fed. Before we get into the index and the fund, Jim, I want to get one of the audience members up here. Go ahead if you're if you're. You know, I guess you know if, if the question is about AI, two things: AI is kind of in that sweet spot right now, where it's the hope of AI. That is God, everybody. And there's a completely off-color joke that has the punchline that you can't keep sitting on the end of the bed just telling me how good it's going to be. But that's where AI is right now. And eventually, it's going to have to produce some results. But for the moment, it doesn't need to produce those results. It just needs to produce the hope of those results. And that gets to my concern about AI. Not whether I'm an accelerationist or an AI safety guy, but more to the point of, oh, AI is going to be the big winner. Who do I have to play? And then somebody mumbles some trillion-dollar company like Microsoft or Amazon or Google, and that's the play. Uh, you know, I, I started an ETF. When AI allows you, me, and Michael to say, we're now on the same footing with BlackRock, then that's what AI's promise delivers. But when AI's promise is another trillion-dollar company can take advantage of this, we can't, or we have to wait for the trillion-dollar company to charge us a monthly subscription to take advantage of this. I don't think that the AI is going to be the big winner. The, the, it's going to be the big leveler. It is going to make, basically give everybody a tool on their desk or on their phone that can make them compete with the trillion-dollar company, not wait for a service from the trillion-dollar company so that they can continue to just stay afloat. So that's what I mean by... AI is in that sweet spot where it's going to be great. It's, I'm telling you, it's just going to be great. Well, at some point, it's going to have to be great. And the definition of great is not Microsoft wins or Google wins. It's we all have a tool, in our, kind of like the internet. We all have a tool on our, on, on our desktop or on our phone that allows us to do things that we could never imagine we could have done 
20 or 30 years ago. And we don't, I don't need to pay a trillion dollar company a fee to get it, to get access to the internet. But if AI is going to be, I have to pay a trillion dollar company a fee to get access to some chat GPT type of product, then it's not going to fulfill its promise. That's my take on it right now. I think ultimately it will give us that promise that I don't have to pay that fee, but I think it's a little ways off. And that's where I think the disappointment is going to come in. And then, Michael, what's your take? Yeah, I will say, and then, by the way, you you articulated it in a a very, uh, I think you explained it very well. I was doing the hundred symbol repeatedly as you're talking. This has always been the other disconnect, which is why (laughs) I keep using that line very loudly. NVIDIA is fucked. And it's not because of NVIDIA. It's because you're not seeing it being translated into the companies that should benefit from the productivity enhancement of AI, which, by the way, relates also to small caps. You're hitting on exactly, to me, what was always the core problem, which is that it's only being centered on a couple of trillion dollar companies when if it's this tremendous boom that's coming because of AI, if the market is a discounting mechanism, going back to the earlier conversation, primarily small caps, not large caps, then why are those areas which would benefit from that leveling, to use your word, why are they starting to move now? There is still a disconnect here, which I think is what's being missed as everybody just looks at the chart of NVIDIA and says AI, AI is the future, but somehow it's forgetting to look at everything else. You know, if you go back and if you remember back in 99, it was Cisco and it was Credit Suisse that famously wrote the piece that they're going to be the first trillion dollar company. And it was kind of the same thing in 99. Well, okay, it's internet thing, but it's only going to be trillion dollar companies that are going to take advantage of it. Well, then Subsequently, through the rest of the 2000s, as the internet you know, exploded, Cisco fell in value because it wasn't that we needed these multi-billion, hundred-billion-dollar companies to run the internet. Anybody could log onto the internet and create a website or create an email address and then eventually social media. In that we didn't need these big, massive companies providing a service for a fee in order to access this stuff. And that's why Cisco struggled during the 2000s and the internet took off. And NVIDIA, I kind of see it somewhat analogous to the story that we ran 25 years ago. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, and we'll get into these, but I'll wrap this part of the conversation by saying I've used this line many times, and I know it hasn't pl- played out yet, but you can make a lot of money in manias, right? The question is, can you keep it? And you know, that's the challenge with this and with this narrative. It's not that I'm against NVIDIA or AI. I'm just seeing a disconnect that nobody else seemingly wants to acknowledge because they're just falling for the story. You, you can't apply a narrative to one single chart, I guess is my point, right? Because then it's just a story that's being made up to justify price when it should be pervasive across many other charts. That's the, for me, the real issue. Okay, so let's talk about, let's talk about the, uh, the ETF launch. Kudos to you. What, what made you want to launch the index, get into this space? Talk a little bit about the partnership with, with Wisdom Tree. Talk about that journey, because I don't think many people really understand how involved the, the product development side of bringing a fund to market is. Yeah, it took a year and a half. You know, we started talking about this a year and a half ago, and it came, you know, in late December in, in terms of the the ETF itself. The index came earlier this year. So the approach, when I saw the sell-off in the bond market in 21 and 22, to quote my friend Jim Grant, who runs the newsletter, and the average yield on, say, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index is around 4.7%. The average yield on a Treasury bill is about 5.2%. No longer are bonds like an advent of crypto or stocks. You know, buy them when you think they're going to go up in price and sell them when you think they're going to go down in price. There's a yield. And that's really where I started with this idea was that yield needs to be managed. Kind of an old school, kind of pre-2009 world is where we were. In managing the yield on a on a total return basis, there's been a lot of academic work that's been done and it's your duration. Are you overweight or underweight your benchmark? In other words, are you betting on rising rates or falling rates? 
your yield curve. How do you own that duration? Do you own it, you know, all packed between the five and the seven year in a bulleted format or in the two and the 10 year more in a barbell format? Your credit exposure, are you overweight or underweight credit? Your structure or volatility exposure, are you overweight or underweight, say, mortgage-backed securities? And then we'll put in a, a fifth factor, which we did, which is called the conviction bet. Are you overweight or underweight things outside of your index in the fixed income space that represent a conviction? Now, in our case, we just rebalanced our index this week. We are slightly underweight duration, 90% of our benchmark, because I still think that interest rates are going to stay sticky to higher. We are we moved from 100% weighting on credit to 90% weighting on credit because of that big issuance and the new all-time high in stocks. Credit spreads do track the stock market. Expect that there would be some underperformance there. We took that extra 10% that we took out of corporates and we applied it to structure. We were at 70% mortgages and now we're back to 80% on our mortgage. The rest of it is an overweight in treasuries. So everybody understands that. Mortgages are usually driven by volatility and the shape of the yield curve. And high volatility means they'll underperform. And that high volatility, we've seen very high volatility in this in the bond market. While you've seen very low volatility in the stock market, the bond market's been the opposite way. And I think that volatility might be coming down in the next couple of months, which is but still stay elevated, which is why I want to be less defensive or less negative on mortgages. And then our out of index or conviction bet is 20% of our index now is in short-term mortgage, short-term tips, excuse me. Treasury inflation protected securities, zero to five years. And so those are securities. If you're not familiar with a tip security, they pay you the inflation rate plus a yield on top of that, a real yield on top of that, around 1.8%. And the reason that we're taking short-term tips, zero to five, is they're not as sensitive to movements in interest rates as the longer-term tips are. So if rates stay at these levels or slightly higher, those will be a better instrument. They've been a great play for us in January. If rates fall, we would have been better off in long term on long-term tips. So the idea here is the yield to 4.7%. I want to get that yield, and then I want to protect that yield, and I want to try and engage in some factor strategies to enhance that yield in terms of a total return. Now, one last thing. You're talking about a discretionarily managed index to beat a benchmark index, like a broad-based investment-grade index. Can anybody really do that? Doesn't everybody underperform? Well, the answer in equities is yes. If you look at the S&P 500 and you look at the strategies that can beat the S&P 500 or the number of active managers that beat the S&P 500, there's very few of them. In fact, famously, every option strategy in equities in 2023, every single one of them, underperformed the S&P 500. You would have been better off just buying SPY than any option strategy in 2023. But in fixed income, the index is not in the 90th or 95th percentile like the S&P is. It's more in the 50th percentile. And because it's in the 50th percentile, that you're starting off structurally with a hurdle that you can jump over a lot easier. Why is the index in fixed income in the 50th where S&P is in the 90th? There's a lot of reasons, but I'll give you one to think about. In equities, your biggest weightings, your MAG7, are your all-stars. If you're not pressing the bet all the way up in your biggest weightings, it's very hard to beat the index. In fixed income, your biggest weightings are your problem children, your over-levered companies, your countries that have borrowed too much debt. It is, I don't want to say easy, but there are tools and there are ways to say, that company's borrowed too much, that country's got too much debt, and that we should avoid them. And more times than not, they wind up severely underperforming. And by avoiding those big weightings, you can beat the index. That's why the index falls in the 50th percentile in fixed income, as opposed to the 90, because it's the problem children at your biggest weightings. Where in equities, it's your all-stars that is the biggest weighting with the, say, the S&P 500. So we're full, we're a fully long index trying to discretionarily tilt our weightings to outperform a benchmark. 
So far, so good since we've come out on the 20th of uh, December with the index. Uh, we have been beating the, the, the benchmark. Now, of course, the market's down and you know we go down too. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if we keep outperforming with that yield, you're going to get a positive return in the long run in the fixed income market. And with that, and by continuing to make the right moves, we'll get better than the yield, you know, a positive total return for the index. So that's the mentality around it. And you're right. I thought about this a year and a half ago. And to be very honest with you, if I was able to snap my fingers and make the ETF come in one day a year and a half ago, that wasn't the right timing. But the process of birthing this thing got us to the point where we were at these big yields. And now that we're at these big yields, I think this is the proper time to do it. And I'll conclude with, we're not the only one to think this, because you see BlackRock, you see PIMCO, you even see Vanguard rolling out similar types of products for similar types of reasons as well. So thanks for letting me explain the index. And if there's any questions on that or on the fund, WTBN just basically tracks our index or any questions about the markets or the Fed or anything else. There might be other products, but there's only one Bianco. So everybody, please make <laughs> sure you follow Jim here on X. Great conversation. Learn more about TBN at your leisure. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.